there that is from Ken Vandermark. The song is called Turn Your Head. It's from his album Utility Hitter and it's copywritten 21st Mobile ASCAP. Uh, Ken was very kind enough to let us use that song. Um, today's guest is Greg Deal and he is an indigenous artist and activist. Um, I've Once I saw his art I was just, uh, I was like I gotta talk to this guy. And uh, it was about a year ago. I didn't even have the podcast going again. But um, he's incredible. He's eye-opening. I have to make two points about this um, episode. Two things I need to point out. One is um, Greg and I talked, and then we wound up the conversation. And I hit pause on the recorder, and we kept talking. And then uh, the conversation was so exciting that I hit record. So there's a break at the end of the show. I pointed out, but so just so you know, so it's uh, but he it, and I really liked the stuff we talked about. Uh, you know, it's all great, but it was a little lighter. Um, also, uh, we discuss uh, presidential candidates, and Elizabeth Warren comes up, and um, her her status with Cherokee Nation or lack thereof. Um, I asked if. Uh, she got a scholarship from her claim that she was uh, indigenous, uh, which uh, at the time I didn't know. I had heard that, but I wasn't sure. But I just want you to know that I, uh, I, I don't believe she did get a scholarship. I don't think that was part of it. So, but uh, he he said sh- Mr. Deal sheds some light on the situation, and uh, it. Uh, well, you know, you'll just listen and then you can hear it for yourself, but it's very interesting stuff. Um, just some real quick housekeeping stuff. My website, thematdwire.com, has links to my social media, uh, my Patreon, uh, the Instagram page that I do for the show. So go to the, thematdwire.com. That'll take you everywhere. Speaking of the Patreon, uh, if you like what's going on in the podcast and you want to be a part of another, the community that is Conversations with Matt Dwyer, you can become a Patreon subscriber. There's uh, three tiers. The $5 tier, $5 a month, that gets you uh, all the bonus extras. It's um, It gets you, uh, I do commentary, which I call commentary uh, with Matt Dwyer, where I'll go back and I'll do commentary on all past episodes uh, there's also bonus episodes. I'll be doing commentary on all episodes. It's going to take me a while because there's like 167 episodes. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll do commentary on all episodes. Um, I'll I try to get the commentary out around the same time the episode loads. Uh, so there's that and ep- extra episodes and pictures and blogs. There's all kinds of stuff up there. So if you want to be a part of the community, if you want more of Conversations with Matt Dwyer, Become a Patreon subscriber. I'd be very grateful, uh, and I think you'll really like, the, especially the commentary, because I get into some personal stories and some history of with me and the guests. Uh, I have um, the, a commentary on my uh, exclusive episode with Andrew Alexander. That's really great. I think you'll dig it. 
And um, so, yeah. And Andrew Alexander was the, uh, he started SCTV, the great comedy show. So it's a very exciting extra. If you like my podcast, listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine and listen to Kilgallen, Kilgallen's Pub uh, from my friend Joe Kilgallen, who's also a great stand up comic. I believe that is all the uh, intro hoodly do I got. So please welcome Mr. Greg Deal. When you decided you wanted to not only be an artist, but an artist with um, a message and uh, with something to say opposed to just being an artist. Um, are we are we live? Are we going? Or are we just chatting? We're recording. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, you know, honestly, I, I don't think I ever really decided anything. It, it kind of happened. Um, I've always drawn. I've always, you know... Uh, done art. I did, you know, a fair amount of graffiti in the early nineties and, um, was always doing something. So it became an issue of, of just getting organized and, you know, going to school and learning processes and things. Um, but I, I've always been aware that, uh, I was different and that I've had a different, uh, experience. And, um, and so I, I knowing that there's a message there has, has always been there. It's always, it's always been a part of, of pretty much everything I've done since a young age. And, uh, going into uh, college and then kind of realizing, you know, processes and the, and the best way to do things, um, gave me a medium by which I could provide that voice, but actually providing a voice to my work that has that sort of edge to it. Um, it took a long time for me to get it to where it didn't seem contrived, uh, that I was trying too hard. Cause that was, that was always a struggle is, is trying to be truthful and not trying to make it look like you're just creating a gimmick of some kind. So, um, but it's always kind of been there. Yeah. It's that, can you speak to that process of, cause I, I as a writer, I know that, um, there was a period where I was emulating. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't being honest to myself, and I was just emulating and uh, sort of trying to be topical at times when, and just emulating the people around me that I thought were cool. Um, is that sort of... Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, it was when I was in college, I was like trying really hard to kind of do what I thought needed to be done. Oh, well, I'm a native person, so I need to be a native artist. And so you know, I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from, I think just, uh, expectations that are sort of put on being an indigenous person and, um, things that your elders expect of you or your peers expect of you. And so there's these processes that have been built over time, particularly in the way that, um, tribes ha and communities, um, that have been trying to survive amidst Western culture and colonization. And so it kind of messes up like the true voice behind a lot of that stuff. And, and so, you know, when you're a young person, you're trying to figure some stuff out. It's really hard to kind of discern like what is an indigenous voice? What is a Western voice? How those two things come together? Um, so until you figure out what works for you individually, you end up, uh, or at least I did, um, 
ended up uh, doing a lot of stuff that just wasn't. It, it, I don't think it was honest. Um, it wasn't me, you know. It was oftentimes speaking with somebody else's voice or, or an expectation that I thought um, that I needed to have, and um, and so that that you know in college, my my the work I was doing just seemed really contrived in that way. Um, it was life experience that kind of got me past that, <laughs> you know, just like, um, you know, when people let you down and you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, uh, I don't know, like you have an expectation, this is how things are done. And then you meet somebody who doesn't, that is, that is like you, um, that not only doesn't do it that way, which is, which is fine, but is also, um, maybe willing to do it wrong in, in, in a moral way so that they can gain an advantage. And then you're like, wait, like we're not all in this for the same thing, you know? And, and those life experiences created positions for me where I took things that I had or, or ideas that I, I had, and I had to essentially break them down to virtually nothing and then rebuild them back up with my own voice and my own understanding, which ended up being the most, um, the most beneficial thing for me. Uh, I mean, it's hard, you know, it's always hard when people let you down, you have a difficult time, but then I ultimately found that, um, that, uh, the truthfulness in your voice comes through the truthfulness of your voice and, and not necessarily relying on other people, uh, to inform your voice for you. And so, yeah, that was, those are hard lessons, but those are, those are the lessons. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it's it's already so difficult to find one's voice and to break yourself down and find that. But then you also have the added layers. You said the the Western influence of, and I saw you speak about this. How as a young child you have these images from movies and cartoons. I, I mean, I can't I can't imagine how that would forgive my lack of finding a better fuck with your head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's still an issue, right? I mean, we're, we've got the, uh, Kansas city chiefs and the 49ers playing today. And, and, um, this whole issue of a mascot comes up and, uh, those images are in mass still, they, they still exist and they don't just exist, but there is a, a blatant disregard from, uh, from the perspective of the people that those images are supposed to represent. And so I know that because I'm an adult and I've been through some stuff and I know some stuff, but like, how, how do my children deal with that? You know, and how do I articulate that to them in a way that's going to be healthy where they can still feel that they're safe and they're loved. And, um, that even though the world may not be, uh, representing them or at least creating images that are uh, appropriate for their own self image, um, how can I counter those things? So that ends up being a big part of it. But I also think it's the power of, um, the power of young people today because they're not necessarily having to go through the exact same things that we went through in the same way that I didn't have to go through the things that my mom or my grandparents went through. And, um, and so it gets a little bit better each time, but, you know, navigating that stuff is, is, uh, sometimes very difficult. So, um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's all, I think it's all strange and I think it's all interesting. And I also think that even though we oftentimes phrase it as though it's all one thing, um, that it's actually a varied experience. You know, if I grew up on a res, I'd have a different experience with those things. And if I grow up in a suburban area, which would be 
a totally different experience in growing up in, say, Washington, D.C., um, because there's uh, a heavier influx of those things in places like that. So, um, yeah, so that stuff's always been there as well. I, I think that's why identity oftentimes lands uh, as a subject matter of my work. Why do you think that it's... I, don't, I hope this isn't a simple or ignorant question, but why is it still so prevalent? Why is it... The, like things like the Chiefs and the uh, Cleveland Indians, where if if it was any other, uh, you know, if they did something similar with uh, black people, it, it would be outrageous. But why is it? Why is our society not caught up to that concept yet? Well, uh, first, I mean, you have to say that that um, it was that way for black people, but they've those things have since been corrected. Yes, um, not com- not completely been corrected, but at the at one time there was, uh, you know, little black sambo and step and fetch, and you know there were these icons in popular culture that were perpetuating this essentially the same thing that mascots do for native people. I, I think a lot of it has to do with history and it has to do with um, context and perspective. Um, the truth is, is that uh, Americans look at an Indian and they believe they know exactly what that is. They've seen uh, movies. They know about cowboys and Indians. Like they believe that they have enough information that they don't have to have anymore. But we're one of the few cultures that I know of uh, in the world, um, if not just, you know, in the United States, um, that is beholden by the perspective of somebody who's not native. Our image is, uh, predicated upon the perspective of a Western gaze. And, um, and the result of that is that, you know, we don't get to define what these images are. Somebody defines those things for us according to their limited knowledge. And if our history is never taught, in a way that is uh, both uh, dignified and equal uh, in terms of like what the representation is, um, then nobody's ever going to understand that like there are this many different communities, there's this much, you know, variance between those communities. Um, you know, there's 567 tribes that are recognized by the federal government right now. Um, of those 567 different uh, communities, maybe a dozen of them wear headdresses traditionally, maybe. And that's a really small number compared to the, the number of, of communities. And yet this image is, uh, the quintessential image of an Indian man. And, um, and so if you never break out of that, then you never have any context. If you don't ever look at Indians, past the mid 1800s, then you never understand what has happened between that time and this one. And if you never have those things, well, then you've never, you've never created a narrative, a legitimate narrative that exists in defining what a modern indigenous person even is, let alone the fact that there would be a modern indigenous person. And that's, that's the great plight. That's the great, the the great effort. Uh, How do you, I just can't imagine like how you're not pissed off all the time. It's seems like it's maddening because it's so prevalent. I'm totally pissed off. all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've, I've learned, uh, I've learned to, 
sort of, well, there's this old line in an old Rage Against the Machine song, right, where it, they're like hitting the beat down of um, of this song, and Zach De La Roca uh, whispers, anger is a gift. Um, and I think anger is a gift, but it's only a gift if you know how to wield it. And uh, wielding anger towards something that is more constructive, um, I believe, can help uh, create different different narratives beyond just the one that you're, you're pissed about. Um, I've been through so much crap uh, along these lines that I have learned to uh, kind of work through a lot of that different stuff. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't lose my crap sometimes cause I absolutely do. But um, you know, I, I also feel personally a responsibility. It's not my duty, but I feel a responsibility to, sometimes put somebody in a position where they can consider and think about the possible uh, differences in what's going on. You know, it's just, it's, it's incredibly challenging. I mean, I still get, and I'm not really in the mascot debate as much as I, I was. Um, and I still get stuff. I still get uh, death threats and hate mail when things pop up. Um, but it's because people just aren't willing to even consider that there's something that doesn't include them. Um, I was once on, uh, I was once on a Fox news affiliate in DC and I was having a debate with this guy about the mascot debate. And, and I, and, and in talking about the mascot debate, I, I believe that everything is connected. If you believe this is what an Indian looks like, if you believe that that's what that looks like, then that is going to go forward and affect um, everything else, perspective, uh, you know, various laws and um, relationships, understandings of those relationships. They all stem from this misunderstanding. But at the end of the interview, the guy said, um, the interviewer asked the guy that was sitting next to me, this Uber fan of the Washington football team, uh, you know, what do you think about this? Do you think it's offensive? And he's like, no, this isn't offensive. I don't see anything offensive about it. Uh, and I think that, uh, I think that there's other things that we need to talk about other issues that are more important. And my response to him was, um, you know, with all due respect, of course, it's not offensive to you. It doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't include you. It's not perceiving your people. Um, and, and all these more important things that you're talking about, well, what are you doing to uh, contribute to those more important things? Everybody always wants to bring that up but nobody's actually doing anything about contributing to those more important things. So it's just used as this contrived or trite uh, comeback to something that you just don't care about. But I mean, I think that's the long and short of it. You know, he says he's not offended. And I'm like, well, with all due respect, it doesn't matter if you're not offended or not. It doesn't, it just doesn't include you. Yeah. So I have no idea why I was landed on this. That kind of went like a long No, that's how that's how the show goes. It goes like I said. We could end up talking about chili at some point. Um, nice. But that reminds me of like uh, the phrase that you use on your art. Uh, uh, your luxury is our displacement, which. That was, I think, the first thing I saw of yours, and I was. Mm. That's why I started following you because I was like, this, this guy's work is important and it informs. And uh, and ever since I saw that, I was like, I want to talk to that guy. <laughs> so thank God I am. Oh, thank you. Um, you also said, and this is a somewhat of a sidetrack, but it's, I'm curious. You said your your family uh, inf- uh, informs your art, which I found was an interesting statement, and I. I I wonder what that exactly means to you. Well, the way I grew up, um, I mean, 
whether we want to admit it or not, you know, it's easy for people to be like, Hey, grow up. But the truth is, is that the things that happen to us when we're young do play a part in sort of forming our ideas and our identity. And, um, I know where I'm at and I know what I think I've got five kids and, um, they're all varying shades of, of, uh, Brown and fair. And, uh, there's some things that they're going to have to deal with that I never had to deal with. And there's things that I need to consider, uh, within what their, what their experiences are, um, that to me speaks to, uh, sometimes a larger experience of, uh, being indigenous in America. And, uh, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter, um, you know, she's 13. And so she's, at that age and time where she's really figuring some stuff out about herself and, um, she's, you know, super smart. So she's asking a lot of questions and she's, uh, she's native, you know, she's numbered among the people of of my tribal community. Um, and I think it's interesting when, uh, I think it's interesting, but I also think it's horrible when somebody says, well, that's a white girl. And, um, and this speaks to sovereignty and the understanding of sovereignty and identity. Um, it doesn't matter if you think she looks like a white girl or not. Her name has been read by the tribal, our tribal leadership in a council that is meant to recognize those that would be included and numbered among our people, specifically our people. And, um, and that means more than some random person deciding that this, this uh, indigenous young lady looks more like a white girl than she does look like and what they think an indigenous person should look like. Those types of things are the way, are the things that like I've had to think about and I've had to consider as, uh, as a father, but also as a native person. Um, but even going through certain things like the first time, you know, when I enrolled Sage uh, into our tribe and the paperwork we get back and the process by which they quantify who gets to be members of this tribe and who doesn't, uh, much of which has to adhere to a Western standard of um, fractions that are used to decide like how much Indian you are, and none of it's done by uh, none of it's done by uh, you know DNA tests or anything like that. Um, it's all done through lineage and through uh, understanding who your family is. But when the United States government first started censuses with. Uh, with native peoples, they would count, like they would look at them and be like, okay, you're a full blood Indian and you're from Pyramid Lake, which is where my people are from. You're Pyramid Lake Paiute and you're full blooded because you look full blooded. And then that means that they've automatically assigned a number to that. And so when he marries somebody, the fractions begin. I know all the fractions of my indigenous bloodline that add up to me being uh, a half. And, um, and that is common, you know, among native people. So going through that process with my firstborn, uh, and then, and then sequentially with, with my other four, um, opens my eyes to processes that I've never really known quite to that degree, uh, were there. And I think that that's incredibly important and insightful, not just to the way that we are regarded as native people in America, but also, um, through just the processes that we have to go through to not just be numbered and counted uh, within our communities, but also like, what does that mean in America? And how do other people perceive that? Do they perceive it at all? And so those are the, some of the things that have um, 
have informed my work in terms of looking at, like really looking at what does it mean for my children as they are being born uh, into our, um, you know, into the world and uh, their own identity, their own indigeneity. Jesus Christ, that's insane to me. And it's like, there's so many people in this country who are like, I'm Irish. And it's like, and then everyone's like, yeah, they're Irish. And like, no one understands what that must mean and what, it's, I'm sorry, I'm a little speechless about it. I, I... It's, it's, it's something that's always been there. I mean, what people don't realize is when this country was first formed, that there were people who were um, implementing what they believed were scientific processes where they were measuring people who are not of European descent. Um, so there's actual photographs. You can find these photographs. Um, and it's called, um, oh my gosh, I just totally blanked on what it's called. Uh, eugenics, maybe? Uh, I don't remember what it's called. Anyways, the uh, um, where they would measure the cranium of, like, uh, an African slave, um, and they would measure their features, you know, the distance between the eyes, the nose, the jawline, all those things, and, and use those measurements to discern whether or not they were intelligent creatures. And they did the same thing with Native people. And so these, this sort of scientific measurement of deciding you know, what a, a native person is, what a human being is, whether or not the size of their cranium will uh, tell you their intelligence, all these different things. And this has been a part of the, the makeup and the um, process of, of building the experiment that, uh, that is America. And so that translating to 2020 is... Um, has turned into these other things that have just existed where it's this perspective. Well, Indians look like this and they look like this. So the first thing a, a non-native person will say uh, probably eight times out of 10 um, is uh, if they find out you're Indian, they go, but you don't look Indian. That's almost immediately what they're going to say. And, and, and maybe half the time, the next questions are like, well, how much are you? Um, I did a film called The Last American Indian on Earth. It's about my first uh, performance piece. And I say it, uh, I talk with a woman on there, and she does all of that. But she also uses words like, well, are you pure? Are there any pure left? And that word pure is uh, really off-putting when you're talking about um, when you're talking about race and ethnicity and like what her perspective is and why is she using that word, why is she asking that um, but these are common questions because that Western perspective of our existence is is incredibly important uh, as Americans interact with uh, Native people in particular. How do you address that when someone says that to you without being... Mm. I, you know, it varies. Honestly, it depends on how they ask it. You know, if somebody asks me because they are legitimately interested and they want to try to understand something, you can generally tell when somebody's asking because they're interested, um, you know, for because maybe they just have never had that interaction before, which I suppose is still insulting on some level. But at the same time, like, I mean, I can answer you. If you're nice, I'll answer your questions because I recognize this is not common knowledge. But when somebody asks because they're um, because they're being condescending or they're being rude or whatever, um, like I'll take them to task every time. I don't have a problem with that. 
<laughs> Do you feel that with our current president and that these issues are getting worse? That is he having an is it not helping? An effect on him? Yeah. Yeah. No, it totally doesn't help. Um, but I think uh, I think that that uh, our current president and his camp, uh, which would include his um, his followers, his supporters. Um, they're convoluting the issues uh, because they don't have enough information. So for Native people, one of the issues that's coming up right now is there's been talk about eliminating or at least trying to eliminate the relationship that the federal government has with Native nations because, um, because we are a race and not sovereign nations uh, or people that the federal government has not just a relationship with but has a um, – federal trust obligation to, which has been determined by uh, the Supreme Court, as well as um, confirmed through treaties that have been created and the way that those treaties has, has affected uh, different Native people and what those relationships are supposed to look like. But if, uh, if Trump and his constituents can convince the rest of the voting world that this is not a relationship from nation to nation, but instead a relationship uh, from federal government to race, that that means that anything that we get from the federal government is essentially a um, uh, something that nobody else is getting. Uh, basically, that we're getting something that no one else is getting, and in terms of race and equality, that is unequal and unfair, and therefore needs to be a relationship that needs to be eliminated. Whereas a federal trust obligation means that we have a relationship with the federal government that is based on, let's just call it land per, uh, dues owned for land, uh, owed for land purchased. If that, and that's, that's really simplifying it, but essentially, um, meaning that we're like a sovereign nation. And so, uh, a good example or a good way of looking at it is like a tribe and a reservation, um, is like a state within a state. Uh, reservations have stuff to adhere to federal law, much like states do. Um, many reservation communities have their own law enforcement, have their own court system, have all of those those uh, things in place so that they can um, essentially enforce laws on their own lands. Um, but the reason why there's gaming on a reservation in a state where gaming is not allowed is because of the sovereign nature of that reservation. It's like a state that is within a state. And so when people don't understand that, then that creates a lot of problems. Like, whoa, they're not paying taxes. Well, I mean, if you go to New Hampshire, you know, they have different tax laws there as well. Um, and nobody's upset about that. If you go to Colorado, where I live, um, you know, the weed is legal here, but on a federal level, it's not legal. And so there's all these other different relationships and different uh, ways of dealing with things. But the problem is, is that in this country, we're twisted and we're so twisted in believing that the poorest uh, minority group in this country uh, is getting something that you're not. Only in a country this twisted could you believe that somebody is getting something you're not when when uh, the poorest people are are without virtually anything. Like, do we have health care? Kinda, <laughs> but not really. You know, like, uh, have you ever been to the emergency room? Like, 
multiply that times a times a thousand. That's pretty much what going to you know some of these IHS. Uh, Indian Health Services hospitals is like. And so there's just no understanding of these things. People don't get it. And so if you can conflate the issue with saying that it's about race, uh, that this happened a long time ago, if you can make an announcement um, that November, which is Native American Heritage Month and has been since um, George Bush Sr., which is, I think, uh, I want to say like almost 30 years now, then uh, you can replace that month as Trump did or tried to do with his statement of of uh, the month of November no longer being American Indian Heritage Month, but being uh, essentially like American uh, Greatness Month and uh, and trying to further erase these people or any ability to have context to these people so that um, you can eliminate what he believes is a uh, is a waste of time. Are there any politicians that you can get behind? Bernie Sanders? (laughs) 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 Does he? I mean, I like... I, he's the only one um, during his during you know 2016 and and right now um, that I've seen that has actually engaged Native people and has has engaged them in a way that is respectful and meaningful. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has lied about her uh, Indian la- uh, heritage, and even if even if she didn't mean to lie about it, she has uh, doubled down on it by doing DNA tests. And by um, trying to play this game, um, she has lost the Indian vote. Like straight up, she does not have an Indian vote. How um, insulting because of what she said is that? Was how insulting was her actions? Well, you know, she's from what Kentucky, I think, and so uh, you know, a lot of people in the South have this sort of blood myth that you know, my great great grandmother was a Cherokee princess or whatever. Um, and that comes from the Civil War when they were doing the Reconstruction era after the Civil War was over. And so they're trying to um, parse out lands and, and kind of reconstruct, like, who has what and where and why. And so it was not uncommon for people to say that their great-grandparents or their grandparents were Cherokee. And they would do that specifically as a statement of, like, we've been here for so long that we have a claim to land, that, that we've been here so long that we have Cherokee in our bloodline. And um, so it's a statement of, of time uh, and claim during the reconstructive era of the Civil War. But nothing ever changed that. Nothing ever corrected that. And so that myth has carried on ever since the Civil War. It's like, what, 200 years later, right? And, um, and so those things still exist. My father grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and I have family that uh, lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, those blood myths are are within my dad's side of the family as well. And we, like, I, I had to kind of let him know, like, nope, that's that's actually not true. And my uncle ended up doing a DNA test and come to find out there was, like, nothing in there that would even point towards anything. And so they just don't, They these things exist. So in Elizabeth Warren's case, like, okay, let's say she came by it. She came by it honestly. She's just had this thing going on in her family forever. Um, the problem is, is that when she went to college, she claimed to be Indians. So it, it like it's one thing to have family that is in your bloodline and you're proud of that, like what you should be proud of that. You should be proud of whatever you want to be proud of and actually belonging to the community. There's a difference between the two. 
Um, one has a stake in the game. The other one um, doesn't. It just, you know, that's just not part of their family makeup. They're not part of the tribal community. They're not part of uh, a lot of those different things. And so it just changes uh, the opinion and the authority within the opinion. And, sh- and sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I well, go ahead. <laughs> well, she, she basically like, there's a card when she was at Harvard that she filled out um, stating that she was in fact an American Indian. And, uh, and that's a lie. And, and unless in this country, you have to be able to prove it. So um, that blood quantum stuff I was talking about where you have to know all those fractions and everything. Um, it, it really sucks on one point cause you're just counting and numbering, uh, native people. And then ultimately, uh, creating a system that's designed to fail them. But on the other end, you're also creating a very specific and very um, deliberate way to identify your uh, native heritage and uh, your ties to an indigenous community. Because I have a federal ID number in addition to my social security number that's tied specifically and directly to being a native person. And so she, it's an issue of accountability, right? So she's at Harvard. Uh, maybe there's not many natives at Harvard, and so she could just say she's Indian, and then Harvard could count her as a minority hire because she's claimed herself to be a Native American. Well, it turns out she's not. Is she also it stole a scholarship, if I'm not mistaken. Like it did. Is that not true, or that's what I was under the impression that she used it I, to get a scholarship? It might be true. I'll be honest. Like I know enough about this to be able to tell you what I've just told you. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't dug into it enough to tell you, to tell you that. I know that she has claimed something. I know she lied. I know she said she was Cherokee, and I know the Cherokee Nation did the research, did her genealogy, and came back and said, "No, you're not Cherokee. Cherokee people are the most documented people on the planet." If she's not Cherokee, they will know she's not Cherokee. So when she goes and she gets a DNA test, in spite of the Cherokee Nation saying, nope, you're not, then the DNA test, ultimately, she's putting out there like, well, look, this DNA test says that I'm part this or I'm part that. By that action alone, she has usurped the sovereign authority that the Cherokee have to making the statement that they made. And so she is not a candidate who is going to support or uphold the sovereignty of Indian nations. So why would any native person vote for her? It's, it's just, it's so, it's it's complicated. It's so complicated. (laughs) No, this, this, I I feel like uh, before I came to talk to you, there's so many, issues and so many things that you talk about that I was like, I said to my wife, I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I, I feel like I, I could talk to you. There's just so much. And I, you know, I, to a degree, uh, am, and I'm ashamed to say it, ignorant to a lot of, uh, of things. I mean, I definitely want to learn and be a better person. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's mind blowing how complex and how, much people don't know and should out of respect it, it, it it's just insane to me but i also believe that's by design i mean this country is is built on a, a few important uh pieces of doctrine uh one is infallibility 
uh, we are the greatest. We will always be the greatest and we can never not be the greatest. Right. Um, and the other thing is, um, is the American dream within that infallibility. There is this dream that anybody can be successful and that anybody can make something of themselves because this is the land of opportunity. And this is the place where you can do it. Can you think of anything that undermines that more than the federal relationship with Indian nations? I mean, we are a country like even just, just on a basic level, we're a country that's built upon a religious freedom. And we all know that story of, uh, of pilgrims and of people just wanting religious freedom in this country to believe how they want to believe. Native people, and, and I, I, I don't really want to call it religion, but I think in, within the Western world, that's, that's the only word that people understand. Um, but the ceremonial practices and the sort of quote-unquote religion that different tribes and different communities uh, would participate or could participate in, we're illegal in the United States until a, a, a act was created in 1978. That's within my lifetime. I was born in 1975. And so within my lifetime, uh, the native ceremony and practices went from being illegal to being legal. What undermines the American dream more than even just that one little piece of information? How was it? How was why? What was the logic behind them being illegal? Because the, uh, I mean, it comes down to like Christianity and and the fear that Christianity has in terms of like something that is different. Um, so if you have uh, missionaries that are going out and they're teaching and they're like, okay, first off, they're going to call them all pagans. They're going to say that they, you know, and paganism uh, or the idea or at least the structure of paganism as defined by Christianity is essentially that uh, that anything that they do is, is of the devil is evil. And so you want to eliminate all of those things. Um, you know, the, the Wounded Knee Massacre that I think most people are familiar with that happened in the mid-1800s, um, where... Uh, there was a bunch of cavalry soldiers that opened fired on mostly uh, women and children and some some elders. There were some also some some younger men in there, but not very many. Um, they opened fired on this group of people and they shot and they killed all of them because they were dancing. They were doing a ceremonial dance, which was called uh, the ghost dance. And there was fear that the, these dances were going to create not just an uprising among the natives, but also that these things were inherently evil. And so to eliminate culture, to, and, and these, are, these are, of course, acts of genocide, um, even as they're defined under the Geneva Convention, which wasn't created until uh, shortly after World War II, the Geneva Convention would point at these processes being acts of genocide, that if you can eliminate their ability to, to conduct themselves in a manner that they have always conducted themselves within ceremony, within ideas, um, then you eliminate identity and culture. If you eliminate their language through boarding schools, if you force a child in a boarding school and you wash your mouth out with soap every time they speak their native language and you force them to speak English and they have to abandon their given names and they have to take upon themselves a Christian name and they have to cut their hair and they have to wear Western clothes, all of those are acts of genocide because they're about eliminating an entire culture of people. 
And it wasn't until the civil rights movement, and in particular the effort of the American Indian movement um, in the 60s and into the early 70s, that there began to be an uprising of indigenous people trying to assert their own authority within their own culture and their own rights. And so that's ultimately where, where you know, that act came from, uh, the Religious Freedom Act. And so they, these are all, you know, things that the federal government has done. I mean, boarding schools were run by religious entities uh, more often than not, but they were contracted by the government. And so the government facilitates it, religion you know, puts a cap on it. And uh, these are all things that have happened within our history. But these are also things that undermine the American dream. If you put those things at the forefront, if you put them in history, if we start being really honest about, you know, the the way that our country has um, sort of put things together, uh, it becomes really easy to see that um, freedom was only had uh, for people that were of a certain shade or color. Uh, freedom was only had for people that came from a certain part of the world um, that did not include Africa and did not include uh, North, South, or Central America. And so when those things still exist, then ultimately, you know, and, and they're never rectified, um, then that's how we land where we are now, where uh, race has become hot button points. Um, there is no recognition for the fact that anybody could be uh, experiencing something that would be unjust or unequal. And I mean, how can anybody ever understand that stuff if, if that stuff is never even talked about or taught about? Has the federal government ever it, addressed this on a proper level or has it always just been, I feel like the federal government still, I'm trying not to use the F word. (laughs) Uh, Fucks with treaties and and it it moves people around. Is that, is the federal government ever going to address this properly or is this just a lost? Um, I mean, these things are still there. They're still on record. Um, There's still certain ways in which you can see that there's interactions uh, I mean, I once sat in a uh, um, the Senate here, uh, Senate Committee for Indian Affairs, um, and had a uh, had a meeting, and when I lived in Washington D.C. and and I went, and uh, McCain was actually the head of that committee, and I heard him stand up and actually say, uh, you know. That, that native people have been mistreated and we, the great, uh, the American, uh, you know, the American country owes them a a debt of gratitude and a debt of, uh, apology, uh, for all the horrible things that we've done to you. I mean, so I've heard, you know, Senator McCain when he was still alive say that, but then like a few years later, Senator McCain wrote into a defense bill, <laughs> you know, the, the taking of, uh, sacred lands to the Apache, and uh, to be able to mine that land out to uh, foreign oil companies to mine and oil uh, to mine and extract oil from that space is considered to be sacred to the um, I think it was a White Mountain Apache. Um, so I mean, I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> like they're talking, they're saying one thing, and then they're not saying you know something else, and and it's like really messed up. I mean. Obama was the first sitting president since I think Kennedy, I want to say, that went to a reservation. And uh, so he went to Standing Rock and 
he told them, you know, like, I've always got your back. We owe you so much. And, you know, all this stuff. And they, they sat with like kids and they did all these things, like made all these promises. And at the end of the, uh, final term of, um, of Obama's presidency, uh, the Dakota access pipeline happened and Obama didn't do anything. Like people were, there were natives that met with him that were like young people. And that were now, cause it was a few years later that were now, uh, young, young men, young women that were putting out, uh, YouTube videos and saying, president Obama, you promised us that you'd have our back. Where are you? <laughs> And so, you know, that, that's common, man. Like, because I think native, the native existence is, uh, political by nature, uh, or has been created to be political by nature. So it's like, it's nice to, you know, go and sit with them and they give you a headdress and, you know, maybe give you an Indian name. And, and then, <laughs> then, uh, when, when things get hot, you know where to be found. And that's just how it's been. Do you, see your art having an effect and changing people's minds and helping inform them? I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's not my goal. Um, I, I accept that if it, if that is the residual effect of my work, I accept that. And, uh, and I, and I do my best to honor that. Um, but I don't ever make anything thinking, okay, this is going to make waves and this is going to make a difference. Everything that I've made has been something that I care about, something that affects me, something that affects my family, uh, something that I think is important. And, um, and I was lucky enough that I was having a lot of those sort of pieces and those experiences for myself uh, at a time when things started kind of blowing up on like the appropriation and mascot debates. Um, but it was never my intent to sort of be a voice for anyone. My work, I believe wholeheartedly is my own voice. I don't speak for anybody. I don't try to speak for anybody. I don't claim to be a voice for native people because I think it's incredibly presumptuous to speak for 5 million people that have, you know, 300 different languages and different dialects within those languages for the 570 whatever tribes that exist, uh, plus the hundreds more that are not federally recognized. Um, I, I don't speak for everybody. I speak for myself and for my own experience, which I think is important in terms of contemporary art because contemporary artists speak for themselves and they speak for their own experience and their own ideas. And I do have some work that has sort of a collective voice attached to it. Uh, but even in those, I'm not doing it with an agenda of any kind other than to articulate my own ideas. That's great. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, would you like to share where people can find your work? Uh, sure. Um, well, my website's gregdeal.com, which is, uh, G R E G G D E A L. Um, but I post on Instagram probably more regularly than I take care. I do post more regularly on Instagram than I do post on my website. Um, <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my Instagram is just at Greg deal, uh, two G's at the end of Greg. Um, and I'm easy to find them out there. Uh, but I think Instagram is the format that I've been spending the most time with. So, uh, well, thank you very much, Greg. I, I cannot tell you how much this meant to me. And, uh, 
I'm, I'm humbled that you uh, agreed to talk with me. Hey, remember that point in the intro where I said that the show came to an end, but then we continue talking and I was going to put that, insert that stuff at the end? Well, this is the point. I just wanted to clarify so it just doesn't have a weird time jump. So here's more conversation with Greg Deal. Last American Indian on Earth, which obviously is tongue-in-cheek. Um, and I would dress in an outfit that is completely contrived, like I bought it over the counter. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I would take it out in public, and people would think, like, like you're a real Indian. But, like, the headdress was fake. Like, everything was fake. And so it, the point of it was, like, that I could embody essentially the stereotype and everybody would think I was real just because of what I was wearing. And, um, and it was like jackass, man. I was just like messing with people. That's all I ever did. And I would hold signs. Uh, one sign said like my spirit animal is white guilt. I saw that. Yeah. And, uh, but that was in like 2013. So, um, there's a totally different conversation we were having with like white folks on a political scale. So most people wouldn't get too mad about it. There's a lot of people thought it was really funny. It made, an appearance again on a right wing blog site uh, a couple of years ago and it blew up again, but for all the wrong reasons, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> How, when you were, cause I, I forget which monument in DC I saw you standing next to with that uh, white guilt sign. Uh, what kind yeah. of, did, what kind of reactions did you get from people? Um, people, well, the reason why I did it was, Obviously, the trope of uh, spirit animals is is one of those those things that exists everywhere. Um, but the other reason was because um, at the time and sort of leading up to the time, the only thing you can get white folks really, really hot about um, is using the term white guilt. And so I used that because I knew it was like the only term that you could say that a, a, a white person would get really upset about. And, uh, or would be triggered by, I guess is how they're saying it now. Um, and so I did it just to try to push some buttons, um, which now the conversation is just completely all over the place. So, I mean, there's a lot more triggers for, for, um, you know, white folks in there than there was in the past. Um, but it was, uh, it was funny to me because I would just see people like reading it and mouthing it, uh, like they're reading out loud. And I could just watch somebody's face transform when, as soon as they like, it leaves their mouth. It's like why Gil, and their face starts <laughs> to contort. Like, that is amazing. That was just amazing. And uh, like, I had another sign that I would hold, uh, and it said, "This used to be Indian land, but everything went to crap." <laughs> and uh, and people were like, "What?" <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, it was it, it, like that whole sort of humorous trickster thing was a part of that. And then things got really serious and have been really serious. And so now I'm trying to get back into um, things being funny. I mean, we did, I was on the Daily Show and um, with a bunch of other natives and uh, they interviewed a couple of fans and then they interviewed some natives. But the whole premise of it were fans being like, I've never met an Indian that was offended. And then they'd march us all in. And it was like super confrontational, but it was 
freaking hilarious because at one point I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, that one guy that's going to say that my great-great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess, and the host is like, well, who would say that? And then they cut to the fans, and one of the fans is like, well, my great-great-grandmother was Cherokee. And it's so it's this amazing thing of, like, using humor to make something more approachable. And um, the Daily Show changed a lot of a lot of minds because it was something that was serious, but it was more approachable. So right now, I'm working on a performance piece. It's sort of like it's sort of a keynote, sort of a performance piece, a sort of spoken word. It's sort of storytelling, um, but it's called the Punk Pan Indian Romantic Comedy, and uh, romantic comedy being like you know romanticism and. Uh, but like it's and it's meant to be kind of serious. There's some serious stuff in there, but it's also meant to be really funny because there's some funny crap, like just looking at music and looking at the way music has affected my life um, and the influences that I've had on music and the experiences that I've had on music. But like my opening line is about my mom, like that she listened to Bowie when I was little, like young Americans. She still considers to be like my theme song, the song she always played, but we like, she was all pop eighties. So it was tears for fears and, um, crowded house and Michael Jackson and all that stuff where my dad was like a hippie. So it was like Crosby, Seals and Nash. But, um, and just talking about my mom and how like she had this incredible taste in music. And then my, 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 final statement on that is that, you know, in 1991, I lost my mom, uh, to the easy listening, where's a Michael Bolton. And she's never fully recovered because she just, (laughs) she has no idea. (laughs) And it's like just these ridiculous sort of anecdotes of this, you know, like these things that are really meaningful, but then they get kind of stuck within pop music and, you know, perception and all this other stuff. So I've been, I've been playing that a little bit, trying to, trying to figure out how to go to a place that's funnier. Um, but I'm, this is the first time in my career that I'm actually spending time writing and trying to find those little vignettes that I can talk about that are like legitimately funny. They, yeah. I think people forget how great humor, cause that Abby Hoffman and that era of protesters used humor. Like when they were talking about levitating the Pentagon, it's like they didn't fucking think they were going to levitate the Pentagon. But it's like they, but everyone was like these crazy hippies. And are you familiar with Lucine Greaves and the Satanic Temple? Yeah, yeah. Did you see the documentary uh, Hell Satan? Because he just, I mean. I- I haven't, but I get the premise, and it's freaking hilarious, man. It's like, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. He he's done my podcast. He's been on a few times, and it's just like when. I, but I didn't get the level of humor until I watched the documentary and just him screwing with the Christian right on their own playing field. Like it's just genius. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it really is super super smart. Like and. I just, I also find myself to be in a happier place if I can find things to laugh at, you know, and, and it's, it's hard. Like, I mean, like we were saying, you know, about being angry or whatever, and and it's, it's easy to be angry. It's hard to turn that anger into something else. And, and I feel like there's an element of self-control that goes into that, but it's also trying to find things that are really funny. Like I've been watching, um, afterlife, with Ricky Gervais, uh, it's a new Netflix. Oh yeah. Thing. 
it's really dark. Like his wife dies and he's depressed. And he wants to kill himself. So he doesn't, he really doesn't care. And so he says anything he wants, he does whatever he wants. And it is freaking hilarious because it's just like him being angry, but also being really smart about his anger. Like, you know, the ridiculousness of things like he couldn't order off a kid's menu. And so because, because, because he had his nephew with him and he wanted something, he's like, yeah, we'll take two of those. And they're like, no, the kid's menu is just for kids. He's like, why? Like it's the rules. And he's like, okay, well then he'll have two. And then they bring, (laughs) they bring two and they put them in front of his nephew uh, at the same plate. They wanted the same thing. And then the waitress is all salty and goes behind the counter and they're standing there with the owner, like the cook watching him. And he doesn't break eye contact and reaches over and grabs the food and just starts stuffing it into his mouth. And that is hilarious because everything is ridiculous. And right now everything is ridiculous, man. Everything is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh... It's like on the mascot debate, this is my favorite. Uh, on the mascot debate, like especially with the Washington Redskins, or like we are trying to honor you, we're carrying your legacy. Like this is something where we believe you're strong, and we're trying to honor you and honor Native people. And the Native people are like, "Yeah, but I mean, this isn't really cool." And then they're like, "Shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> It's like I heard somebody once say to me, they're like, you know, Indians are strong and they, 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 their symbol stands for strength and they fight and they're warriors and everything else. Like, then why are you pissed off that I'm fighting you over this? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody makes sense. Everybody's ridiculous. Uh, amen to that. Well, once again, Greg, I, uh, thank you very much. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please, just a reminder, rate and review the show. Tell your friends, patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. Thank you very much for listening. Power to the people.